Hi, I'm Emily. Yep, so Matthew 13, starting at verse 24. So that's Matthew 13, starting at verse 24 through to 43. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven leaven, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the word world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the son of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Fantastic. Thank you again for having me with you this morning. Uh, Let me pray again. Uh, Heavenly Father, please uh, help us as we look at your word to understand what you're saying to us. Uh, Please uh, forgive me for any uh, mistakes or shortcomings in my explanation. Please help us all to test your word for ourselves against what we already know and help us uh, not just to hear now, but to go home and think about it and talk to each other and keep growing in following Jesus. Amen. Uh, a bunch of years ago, it was like 10 to 20 years ago, I can't remember exactly when, I went to a, uh, an event uh, in a church, uh, I think on a Saturday, you know, talking about some kind of political issue. I don't remember what the issue was, but it was you know, some kind of issue that people were concerned about at the time. And uh, the main speaker was uh, a guy who I have nothing but the highest respect for, and he, he did a good job of talking about, you know, the issue from a Christian perspective and what we could do about it. But that, none of that is what stands out in my memory. What stands out in my memory was he, he made this comment just early on 
uh, about how it was nice to be talking to Christians about the issue because it meant uh, he didn't have to worry about whether we had the same goals. We've all got the same goals. We can just talk about strategy. And I thought that was not intuitively obvious for Christians talking about politics. Uh, his assumption was the reason Christians never talk about politics in church is because we all agree already. And I thought that, was, that wasn't my impression. So I, I went to him afterwards and I, I said, look, I, I genuinely want to know, we all have the same goal. Can you just tell me in a nutshell what that is? And he said, well, it's to build society on the Ten Commandments. Now, that's not an unreasonable answer. But I said to him, okay, so just to clarify, if you just implemented the Ten Commandments as laws, uh, you'd be outlawing religions that use idols. Is that what you mean? And he said, no, 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 no. I guess what I really mean is the second table of the Ten Commandments that are about how we treat each other. And I said, okay, fair enough. If, if we just implemented those as laws, you'd be making a law against coveting, against having thoughts and desires inside you that no one else can see that are wrong. You'd want to make a law against that. And he said, well, no, I guess it's more complicated than that. Now, I share this example not to uh, criticise this particular guy, because actually I have nothing but respect for this guy. I think he's at the top of uh, Christian... I'm not going to name the name, because I don't want to... I think that's a distraction. But I think this is a guy who's done really well in uh, being a Christian and leading other Christians and engaging with our society. But at that moment, I thought, if he can't give me a simple, clear answer to that, it's not just me. Because I'd been struggling with this issue for a while and thinking, is everyone else on top of this and I'm just the only one who doesn't get it? At that point, I thought, no, no, it's not just me. We've got a problem as Christians in the modern Western world, I would suggest. Uh, I think we're pretty good at thinking about how, as an individual, I follow Jesus. I think we're pretty good at thinking about how you, whoever you are, how you as an individual, how I love you as an individual, because I'm a Christian and I want to love my neighbour as myself. But when it comes to how we think about following Jesus together or when we think about how to influence groups of people, whether it's you know, the whole of society or my sports club or my school or my university or my workplace, any group of people that's bigger than just people I can know personally, I think we struggle. So I've got a suggestion. Realistically, I'd be very surprised if I've nailed it given that people who I hold in very high regard don't seem to be able to nail it. I think it's unlikely that I've nailed it, but I'm hoping to push you in what I think is the right direction according to the Bible. And it's the parable of the weeds that we just had read in Matthew 13. Uh, the story's not complicated, is it? But I'm going to read it to you again. I'm going to skip over the parables in the middle just to emphasise this parable, though the parables in the middle are obviously important as well. I'm going to read from the NIV. I hope that's okay. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Uh, best guess from historical sources, that sort of thing could happen back in Jesus' day. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Uh, so it seems like at first, when they were first starting to sprout, the weeds sprouted but they couldn't tell the difference straight away until they, you know, matured. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. 
because while you are pulling weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So pretty straightforward story. Uh, completely foreign to me, and I have relatives who do farming, but I still don't understand what's going on. But the, 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 I think you get the idea pretty, pretty clearly, can't you? Right? Uh, someone's planted their crop. Uh, someone who, you know, wants to spite them or perhaps has some kind of neighbour dispute with them has come and sown a weed, deliberately planted the seeds of a weed to make this person's life much worse. And so at first they don't notice until it's too late. The, 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 the roots of the plants are all grown together. They're too entangled to just go and pull up the weeds. And so they've got to wait till harvest and then they've got to harvest everything and, and gather the weeds in one pile and the wheat in another pile and separate them at the harvest. And, and Jesus says, this is how the kingdom of God is going to work. Verse 36, then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Then they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Okay, so let me just briefly explain what I think Jesus is doing here theologically, what he's teaching us about God and God's plan, and then briefly outline what I think the application is, and then we'll look at some more details. So firstly, what is uh, Jesus doing here theologically? What's he telling us about God and his plans? Well, I think he's telling us that God's plan has moved on in a significant way from God's plan in the Old Testament, God's plan with Israel. Uh, so just if you've got a Bible open, flick back with me to Deuteronomy 13. If you want to just listen, that's fine as well. So bearing in mind what we've just, we've just heard Jesus say, the plan is for God's people and evil people, we'll talk about what that means in a minute, but just let's keep it simple for now. God's plan is for good people and evil people to grow together until the end of the age, and then evil will be separated out and good will be gathered. That's the basic idea. Now compare that with Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place, and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. So what do you do with the prophet or dreamer? That prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. Is that just a one-off? No. 
if your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known, gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other, do not yield to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. You must certainly put them to death. Your hand must be the first in putting them to death and then the hands of all the people. Stone them to death because they tried to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, that troublemakers have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known. Then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true, and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town. You must destroy it completely, both its people and its livestock. You are to gather all the plunder of the town into the middle of the public square and completely burn the town and all its plunder as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. That town is to remain a ruin forever, never to be rebuilt, and none of the condemned things are to be found in your hands. Then the Lord will turn from his fierce anger, will show you mercy, and will have compassion on you. He will increase your numbers as he promised on oath to your ancestors, because you obey the Lord your God by keeping all his commands that I am giving you today and doing what is right in his eyes. So what I think Jesus is saying in the parable of the weeds, we're not doing that anymore. I think he's specifically addressing that. Because there were people in Jesus' own time who were very keen to see God's kingdom come in its fullness. And Jesus is coming saying, the kingdom of God is arriving. And there are some people whose reaction is great. Let's get the army together and kill all the people who are the problem. And you can see why they thought that. But Jesus is saying, no, that is not God's plan for now. That was God's plan for that previous stage of history, for that previous stage of his work. But now I'm coming to announce a new stage that is going to work differently. Now, I don't imagine that uh, any of you really uh, think that making people Christians by force is a good plan. Uh, But we mustn't forget that Christians who have this part of the Bible in the past have done that. Uh, Charlemagne the Great, uh, in kind of the middle of the Middle Ages, uh, had a very good advisor in the person of Alcuin, who kept telling him, don't try and make people Christians by force. It doesn't really work. It's not how God's plan works now. And Charlemagne, who was great for... There's lots of things that were great about Charlemagne, but he didn't get it. I, I think the problem is... Uh, when Christians cannot give an answer of what we want for society, people go, well, historically, this is what you've tried to do. You say that's not what you want to do now, but you don't, you're not clear what you do want to do, so I guess you'll just revert back to that if you have the opportunity. 
And if you don't have an answer, that's not an unreasonable fear. I think uh, for many of us in the modern Western world, we're very concerned about the ideas that are circulated in our society, partly because we know that God's word is powerful. It's the truth that people need. It's the truth that sets people free. But sometimes we do apply the kind of purge the evil from among you approach to ideas. Uh, I don't know if you know uh, Roy Williams. He has a book called Post-God Nation. Basically, he tries to describe how Australia as a society moved from being culturally Christian to culturally non-religious. And he, Roy argues there are four big factors. They are scientism, not science. Scientism, thinking science is all there is. Uh, prosperity, not a bad thing, but it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then two things that the church did wrong. Our war policy and our education policy. He has a whole chapter describing how in the history of Australia, repeatedly, when it came to setting up education policy, how we educate young people to know the Christian foundation of our nation, Catholics and Protestants couldn't agree, so we just had none. I'm not saying that at the time I would have done any better. I'm just saying in hindsight, I think it's pretty obvious that was a bad idea. So my, my kind of hypothesis about how we should think about groups of people, interacting with groups of people, being Christian together in groups, uh, interacting with non-religious groups together. Uh, my suggestion is, whereas in individuals, it's right to have quite a focus on putting to death the old man. When it comes to groups, our focus is not purging the evil from among us anymore. Our focus is, as Romans 12 puts it, overcoming evil with good. Not so much fighting evil, restraining evil, though individually that's absolutely the right focus. But corporately, I suggest we focus on overcoming evil with good. So let me just do three kind of detailed questions that are going to come up in terms of what that means and how it works. I think the first obvious one is, why can't getting rid of bad people work? Right? God knew when he commanded the Israelites to do it, he knew it wasn't going to work. There's something right about it. There's something just about it. Right? If you think of the worst crimes that people commit, it's not unfair to punish them strongly for that. It's not unfair. But it doesn't make society better. What's the problem? Uh, well, I think uh, we see... I'm going to show the answers to all these questions in the Sermon on the Mount, just because that's fun. Uh, so... Uh, If we look at uh, Matthew chapter 5, we'll see here that uh, Jesus talks about the commands, especially, but not only the Ten Commandments. And he says, you've heard that it was said you should, you know, not do the wrong thing. You know, don't do the evil thing, purge the evil amongst you. But actually, the problem's much deeper than that. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. See, it's not just stopping murder that's going to solve society's problems. Actually, everybody... 
has the kind of murderous thoughts and feelings that are the real problem. Or verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or verse 31, it's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33, again you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath but fulfill to the Lord the vows vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Verse 48, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. The problem with trying to separate out the evil people is whatever you know thing you point to, everybody has a bit of that contaminating them inside. Everybody is a mixture of good and evil. Uh, just to give another cross-reference, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 puts it like this all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God all human beings are created in God's image to reflect his glory all of us have some degree of God's glory that we reflect but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God the way he created us to reflect it. So why can't you just remove bad people? Well, because that would mean removing, removing all of us. We're all contaminated. So that raises an opposite question. How then can God remove evil at the end of the age? If, if, if you can't just pick out who the bad people are compared to the good people, if there's bad in everyone, how can God do it? Well, that's a long and exciting story, which really the whole Bible is set up to answer. But let me just give you one of what I think is the major headlines. And that is that God can reliably and accurately tell the difference, which we can't. God can reliably and accurately tell the difference between good and evil, which we can't. So Romans 7, uh, verses 21 to 23, so this is towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus said, at the end of the age, many people, it says many, will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, it's great to see you. We're on your side. You know, we prophesied. We cast out demons. We did miracles on your own. We're clearly the good guys. Right? They believe it. They believe they are the good guys. And Jesus will tell them plainly, I never knew you. 
Away from me, you evildoers. Right? They are self-deceived. They are self-deceived. And what is it? How is it that self-deceived people, people who, who cannot reliably tell the difference between good and evil, people who especially can't tell the difference between good and evil in themselves, right? You give me a kind of a story from 100 years ago from the other side of the world about something being done. Ask me, is this good or evil? Who's on the right side? I can probably have a fair crack. But if you play a videotape of how I treated my kids this week, oh, that's completely different. That's very difficult. How can people like that, how can people who are a mixture of good and bad ever be purified and brought out to be part of the good? A good future world that Jesus is building? Well, did you notice what these people are missing? Jesus says, I never knew you. The way God saves self-deceived sinners like you and me, a mixture of good and bad, the only way it can happen is for Jesus to know us. For Jesus to know us. Well, finally, if that's the case, how do we actually go about overcoming evil with good? And I think uh, the basic issue here is too often we want to separate out God's word and God's good works. Whereas actually the Bible presents them as both going together. Uh, So we notice this again at the start of the Sermon on the Mount. uh, Matthew 5, starting at verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is it your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, a prophet's job basically was in Israel to tell the king stuff that he didn't want to hear. And because the king had the power, often the prophets got a pretty raw deal. And Jesus says his followers are supposed to model themselves on that. Then he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The people who have this prophetic role of sharing God's word have this impact of people seeing their good deeds and glorifying their Father in heaven. Let me give you another passage that links those, I think, a little bit more explicitly. Uh, In 1 Peter, chapters 1 and 2, I'm not going to read the whole two chapters, though I've set myself a precedent with reading the whole of Deuteronomy 13. Anyway, uh, let's just do an excerpt. Uh, So if we read the end of 1 Peter, chapter 1, let's start it in verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves... By obeying the truth, 
so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit. Right? This is the purifying, getting, putting to death the old man. Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. I think that's the word of God. So that, it may be, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. But then if we skip down in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 to verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So we love the Bible. We know that the Bible is good. We love knowing Jesus through the Bible. We put to death our old ways and we change the way we live so that other people can see and glorify God. Some will glorify God by turning to him and trusting the Lord Jesus. And some will glorify God unwillingly when Jesus returns and they have no other choice. But God will be glorified either way by your good deeds. But they're good deeds that come out of God's word. It's not just that you can do good deeds and leave God's word for something else. They go together. Just back in uh, Matthew 13, I think uh, I should say, just as a, uh, for completeness, uh, there are some other ways of taking uh, this parable. One of the, the kind of hot issue in, in the parable of the weeds is which end exactly Jesus is talking about. Uh, and I haven't addressed that at all because I don't think that's the big issue. I don't think it's the issue he's addressing. I think what Jesus is addressing is that we've moved on from God's law with Israel. Uh, there, are, of course, are some Christians in the world today who that say, no, no, the job of Christians is to get the Old Testament law legislated in your society. Uh, that's not the view of our church officially. And I don't, I don't think I've ever met anyone in any of our Westminster Presbyterian churches who has that view. So if that's you, I'm happy to hear from you, happy to hear your concerns, happy to tell you why I'm not convinced of that. But I haven't spent a lot of time on it this morning because it's just sort of not us. Uh, where there is variety in our churches is exactly how the end works because uh, Jesus was really the start of the future early. When Jesus came and died and was rose, he was raised to life as the beginning of the new creation, but the rest of the new creation didn't happen yet. And so exactly how you see that working and exactly how Jesus teaches about that uh, is an issue that uh, we would have some different views about, and that's kind of fine. I just don't think it's the point of this parable, so I'm not going to address it. So with that kind of official side note dealt with, let's, let's come to the end of what the point of all this is. I think uh, when it comes to uh, thinking about how I follow Jesus as an individual, how I think about loving an individual neighbour as myself, I think we're all pretty much on the same page. But when it comes to living for Jesus as groups, when it comes to 
interacting with groups as a Christian. Uh, I think we, we don't have a clear vision of how to do that. I think it's too easy for us either to be vague, which means that people will just assume we want to convert people by the sword, or we don't want to convert people by the sword, but we want to censor ideas by the sword. And actually, that's not God's plan. God's plan for this point in history is for good and evil to grow together until the end when evil is purged and good is gathered. And so, although individually it's absolutely right to be thinking and talking and working at fighting evil, putting to death my old nature, I reckon that's not the best way to focus as we think about group behaviour. It's better to focus on overcoming evil with good. That's my hypothesis. Hopefully you can figure out how to do better with it. I don't play golf, but I have friends who I like making fun of. So, <laughs> you all know the basic idea of golf, right? You have a stick, is it a club. You have a bunch of clubs, so you can compare each other's clubs. And uh, use different clubs to hit the ball from a long way away into the hole. Uh, so a couple of years ago, they changed the rules, I believe, about the flag stick. I think people call it the flag or the pin. It's a stick, normally with a flag on the top. <laughs> which, so it has a very technical name, the flag stick. Uh, so they stick, that, they stick that in the hole, so that from a long way away, you can see where you're aiming. Now, from what I can tell from talking to my friends, when they're starting out, most of my friends don't need the flag stick. <laughs> they're, just aiming, they're just aiming not to go into the trees or the lake or whatever, really. But at the, very, the thing they've changed about the rules now, if I understand correctly, is it's now up to the person putting whether they want the flag stick in while they're putting. Right? Because it gets to a point where you're so close, you don't need the flag stick. Right? And you might not trust your friend to pull it out in time. Anyway, but in the, in the middle distance, right? when you've, you've started but you're not at the end, in the middle distance, you need the flag stick because you can't see the hole and you need to know where you're aiming. I think that's what it's like following Jesus in the modern Western world. I think we're pretty good at, you know, myself following Jesus. You just follow what he says. And I'm such a sinner, that's a big improvement. When we actually get up close to individuals, we know we have to love our neighbours as ourselves. But in the middle distance, when we're viewing people in groups, I think we've lost track of the flagstick. Jesus' plan is not to purge the evil from among us yet. God's plan is for good and evil to grow together until the end. And so that means we can overcome evil with good. Let me pray.